you are listening to Necropolis on Hessian Firm. Please visit hessianfirm.com for metal reviews, interviews, analyses, lifestyle articles, as well as releases from the label. Welcome to Necropolis. I am Jason, also known as Lone Goat. Today we are doing the first roundtable discussion where I gather interesting characters and extreme metal, and we start discussing various topics within metal. It's going to be more relaxed than uh, the episodes where I do interviews. So the I have three guests today for the roundtable discussion. The first guest is Shelly from Hate Meditations, uh, that website that reviews a lot of metal. So thank you for being on the program, Shelly. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Of course. And we also have Jesse Jolly uh, returning, who uh, is in the project Blight Mass, as well, he's been in a, a lot of other bands such as Amon, Crimson Massacre, After Death, Diabolic, uh, Looming to Larvae, um, et cetera, Promethean Horde, Paths of Possession, uh, Corpse Grinder, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Welcome back on the program, Jesse. Hey, thank you very much for having me. And we have my little buddy, Deadite, um, <laughs> from Maryland, uh, originally from like the D.C. area. Um, met him and all that just a very personal guy very knowledgeable about metal uh, so it's great to have him on the program thank you very much of course so i got a quite a interesting group of characters here so uh the first topic that we're going to be discussing today is the relationship of horror movies and metal um so i think this is a very fertile ground for our first topic here so if you look into um, like especially like the really old school death metal stuff like DSI, there's a song Dead by Dawn, which is from Evil Dead. Um, there's Possessed, you know, Evil Dead, that song they wrote about it. Um, Entombed had that uh, Phantasm melody in their uh, album Left Hand Path. Um, we have Mortician and their entire discography being influenced by horror movies. Um of course, you know, there's also other horror elements such as Lovecraftian elements that are prominent in metal. Um, so what, what's your take on, like, the influence of horror movies and metal? Anybody? Well, uh, I guess I'll start it off. I mean, obviously, my, my uh, nickname is, uh, you know, an album to Evil Dead. Um, I mean, I'm surprised that you didn't mention uh, Impetigo, basically their entire discography. That's right, uh, yeah. I think I think they, they were the whole reason I think that Mortician started doing that because I think some pedagogue songs start off with like two three minute samples before the music starts. So yeah, they they that was definitely an early band um, uh, that that deserves mention. Very cool. yeah, I think um, the thing about those bands as well it's it's not so much in the music; it's more in like the lyrics and as you mentioned, like the massive samples as well. But I think it's mm. interesting. I remember reading an interview with the guys from Emperor saying that as well as like listening to sort of Merciful Fate and stuff like that, they're also listening to a lot of like horror film scores that influence like their early work as well. So yeah, John of- Carpenter is a lot of people in the metal world like John Carpenter just as a uh, music, um, which is really interesting. I know um, he has like a progish metal band where he actually goes through uh, a lot of the melodies they did in his horror movies and the the metal crowd is very very conducive to that music i know there's also that project goblin which did some scores like suspiria and all that and i actually played a show with them and 
Austin at the House Score Horror Film Festival. It's another correlation I didn't think about about the Phil and Selma throwing that uh, horror movie uh, festival. He threw a, th- a few of them. And what he had was he booked like 20 metal bands on that. So there's another correlation to metal there. Um, one thing that I also think um, um, back when these bands were starting up, there was the big satanic panic going on. And with that, it was like uh, they kind of assimilated all this dark imagery and, you know, satanic imagery and things like that. And horror movies really fit into that niche just to kind of scare and shock people and keep the wimps at bay. So that may be another influence there. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And uh, one of the the biggest influences in terms of horror films for me is as a lyricist is just like seeing the imagery and just some of the plots, like it just leaves itself wide open for uh, an entire concept album. You know, like John Carpenter's The Thing is like probably my favorite horror sci-fi of all time. And I've probably written three songs lyrically just kind of off of imagery or visual, you know, just kind of the, the, the appeal of it. I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, but yeah. It's, that seems like a film that you could write endless songs about. There's so many ways to interpret that film. That's a really good example. And I call it out the, at the mountains of madness. <laughs> <laughs> well, totally I, know for, <laughs> I know for um, in the mouth of madness, the John Carpenter film, he tried to get, Enter Sandman as the like intro for the opening credits, but Metallica wouldn't let him. So he basically rewrote his own version for the opening credits to that. And it's just like a basically John Carpenter doing his own version of Enter Sandman. Yeah. Did Metallica do him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say I watched Body Bags for the first time, actually, just probably a few months back. And I was like very surprised at how amazing that film was, <laughs> the soundtrack and everything. Mm. Uh, one movie that uh, is pretty recent, actually, came out in 2015. It's called Bone Tomahawk with Kurt Russell. I freaking love that movie. And it starts out just like a Western, but then it turns into like a survivalist thing where they're going through the wilderness. And eventually, you know, towards the end of the movie, they meet up with uh, some cannibal Native Americans. And it gets super freaking gory and turns into a, a full-fledged horror movie at that point. But what I heard about that movie... It's actually one of my favorite movies ever, so I highly recommend Bone Tomahawk. Okay. Um, but the, uh, the the director behind that actually had a black metal band, so there's another correlation to horror metal right there. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, rare. I mean, what, you mentioned... What? Oh, sorry, Shelly, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to um, say you mentioned, like, the satanic panic, and it was, like, it started with... Um, like yeah them getting very worried about certain like satanist groups in america but i know in this country in the uk um they were really worried about like some of the horror b movies that were coming from the us so they sort of employed a group of people to work for the government um to basically censor films so it would be their job to watch endless sort of b movie horror films and some of it wasn't just horror it was like you know sexually explicit films as well but they just have to watch that day in day out and give it like an age rating based on like the violence of it and then that you're kind talking of that about the uh, oh i'm sorry are you talking about the it's called the uh, video nasties right that's it yeah video nasties but that kind of censorship yeah. led out into the music as well because that was like just mm. around the time the death metal was becoming a thing yeah, um, well actually actually one uh one thing that uh 
I'm surprised you didn't mention Jason is the, uh, the festival that uh, I worked your merch for you at. I forget what it was called, but that one uh, literally was performance. Then maybe a horror film or a short and then another musical performance, pretty much all the performances aside from uh, you, Jason, were metal. And David Vincent playing country music. Well, right. yeah. And <laughs> okay. I, I, I kind of blocked that from him. I was drunk and I was standing right there and, you know, in the front <laughs> while he was playing. Um, but yeah, that was called death by festival in Austin, which was actually yeah. put together by some of the people who were involved with the uh, house score horror film festival. It's like a little offshoot of that, but film mm. Selma wasn't involved with that one. Um, that's another big thing is film Selma is like one of the, the big icons in metal. Um, and he's super freaking into horror movies. And um, you look at, uh, not really a big fan of Rob Zombie, but a lot of people classify his stuff as metalish, even though it's like hard rock. Um, and he, he directs horror movies. Mm. Yeah, he does, man. And I, I've, yeah, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but I've, I've just not seen a lot of his films that I really felt were just dripping with originality. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of one thing, like uh, someone shared a post the other day saying that he was going to uh, remake the, make a movie of the monsters. And I was like thinking, well, how can he rip off Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the monsters? Like, how can he do it this time? You know what I mean? So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Fucking Eddie Eddie Munster comes out with them getting a piggyback ride from Leatherface. I guess I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it it seems that you know he's just a fan who has you know found his way into a lot of money, and now he can make tributes to the things that he likes in film. Sure, sure. I know. Um, yeah, he. I, I do agree. He does. He really does lack a lot. A lot of. I mean, I was going to say as a correlation to that, I know Danny Filth, I think, I can't remember if he made, if he directed the film or if he just starred in it, but it was a film in like the early 2000s. And again, it was like a sort of yeah. rip-off vampire flick that was, yeah, just not, <laughs> not very original at all. I know. I'm a huge, like, uh, a fan of, like, the first, like, say, four albums of Cradle, I think, are unreal, you know, and I've always uh, held Danny in such high regard as a lyricist. He's an amazing lyricist, you know what I mean? And uh, I saw that movie when it came out. I, I think it was called uh, something to do with fear. I think if I'm something in the title, I think it had to do with fear. But like, uh, yeah, it was, you know, kind of gory, kind of B filmy. And uh, it was kind of like kind of cringy. But, you know, hey, you got to see some boobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like for a lot of them, it's an extension of like music videos. Like because yeah. music videos are getting they're quite low budget sometimes, but they try and sort of emulate or pay tribute to a horror film that they like, and then so why not take that's it to the next step? That's another correlation. You look at bands like, you know, Cradle of Filth, Belfigore, and things like that, they're, they're, their movies are a direct representation of that horror movie influence where they throw in, you know, gore and sexy women and, you know, lots of dark imagery and all that. So it's kind of interesting. There's a, I think um, even when it comes to, like, especially in death metal and black metal, a lot of the intros before songs are kind of influenced by horror movies. You know, of course there's going to be the ones that are, you know, very orchestral and, you know, classically influenced, but there's a lot of, you know, dark um, horror soundtrack type of intros and in metal bands. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like um, they're either sort of directly 
sampling a famous like horror theme. And I another one just came to mind then is like I think Hellraiser might be one of the most sampled films on metal albums in general. Just because there's so many samples scattered throughout albums that I've heard over the years. Yeah, it's gotta be either Hellraiser or uh Evil Dead or Dead Alive. Those three I hear sampled more than any other movies. Yeah. There's a, a really uh, creepy film from like, I think like 1978 or 81, somewhere around that time. And it's called Eyes of Fire. And I don't know, it's not a very well-known film, but it's about these pioneers that get exiled, you know, from their religious community because of uh, adultery or whatever. And they end up, you know, I don't want to give it away, but it's like this extremely terrifying, unnerving film. And I don't know what it is about it. And the soundtrack to that's actually quite unusual. And I think that's a, uh, I'm going to try to pull something from that before someone else does. Anyway, yeah. Eyes of Fire, check it out. Yeah, or okay. you, you could always hit me up to do an intro for you. Mm-hmm. Um, one, uh, one film I guess we should mention, or I should mention, is uh, one that we saw at the uh, Fest Together, which was uh, one of the American Guinea Pig series. If any of you guys are familiar with the Guinea Pig or American Guinea Pig series, um, it was called Song of Solomon. And it was uh, quite possibly one of the most viscerally gory and, uh, you know, generally visceral movies I've seen on, on uh, this kind of, in this kind of genre. It was uh, really, really good, worth seeing. If you've not heard of the series, it's very, very uh, intense, very, very realistic gore. Uh, some would even call it gore porn. Um, the second, the second film in the series, it's originally a Japanese series. The second film in the series is infamous for, um, having an incident with Charlie Sheen where, wherein he saw it and alerted the FBI because he thought the film was real. And the film's director then had to come and defend himself and like, no, this is, and he had to demonstrate how he did all the stunts and stuff. It's a very good series, but you know, not for the show. I think I saw Flower of Flesh and Blood. That's the second one you're talking about, right? Yes, yes, that is exactly. There you go. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, I I can see why he would have felt that way. But, I mean, to me, I'm like, if it was real, why would that damn samurai paint himself up, like, so damn silly? You know what I mean? Like, if someone was really doing Charlie Sheen. It's also Charlie Sheen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He ran out of cocaine. Yeah. Hey, Dad, I I noticed uh, that same festival that you're talking about that death by mm-hmm. festival they showed mm-hmm. one movie there um i forgot what it's called but one of the the main actors in that movie was gene from uh angel corpse and temple of perdition remember that was about to this is exactly that. the film i'm talking about oh, actually <laughs> yeah no 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 that's okay that's okay i i i i was uh trying to remember his name uh it was gene from angel corpse he played a uh, priest and he actually was Probably one of the best actors in the film, I would say. He was surprisingly very good. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it was uh, "Song of Solomon" is the is the subtitle, right? Yeah, yeah, that was really gory. I remember that, but you know, that was I think that was after I had played, and I was already hitting you know the bar up quite a bit, so I don't <laughs> remember the details. Yeah, and speaking of Hellraiser, I uh, I woke up a little. Uh, hung over this morning and you know the scene where he comes back frank comes back and he's like the blood it brought me back i don't know how but i need more that's the way i feel with this beer <laughs> yep good times 
So any other correlations that you guys have noticed with metal and horror? I know there's so much there that it's kind of hard to uh, just keep talking about it because I think it's so innate in metal that we don't consciously think about it that much because it's such a recurring theme and influence of metal that uh it's so innate and recurring that it's become it's become schlock you know when when, uh, i tried what was it like razorback records you know with all those like horror themed death metal bands um that was a big theme for a while and it, it just kind of uh you know like like other themes it became oversaturated but it is still so innate and you can still do it really well you don't have to you don't have to flop well i think as well the two um sort of act as a gateway to each other like i was never really a natural fan of horror films but listening to so much metal over the years and realizing where particular samples or where particular lyrics have come from and then just out of curiosity going and discovering some horror films and i think it probably works and vice versa as well because there's so many metal musicians or influences in horror films as well that you know horror fans will come across and at least at least be incidentally aware of like the metal culture surrounding it Mm. yeah Yeah, for sure um me personally like when i was like 12 years old back when blockbuster was still a thing um like one summer i just went and started renting every horror movie that they had like the the bigger name ones and I just wanted to expose myself to all the, the creepy pasta out there. Um, and I think, you know, and I was already getting, you know, in the metal at that point. And so I think I kind of just like subconsciously just think that the two are intertwined because, you know, the, the metal influence or the, the horror influence in metal is so prominent. And I've exposed myself to, you know, horror movies so much that I don't really think about it anymore. Um, so I, I just see like a band coming up and they might have something called like, you know, something referring to like the Necronomicon or something like that. I don't even think, you know, about, you know, evil or evil dead or Lovecraft or anything like that. It's just like part of metal to me. Yeah, I agree, man. I'm, I think, uh, and one thing, a funny story about Evil Dead kind of uh, that I, I have, I always get a chuckle out of it. Like Eric Hoffman doesn't say like a lot of funny things. But one thing he did say was like back in the day, he was like he was ragging on Glenn apparently for his lyrics or whatever at the time. And he was like, we got sick of it and we forced him to watch Evil Dead over and over until he just wrote a bunch of songs about it. And that was kind of <laughs> like the way, they, the way that he explained it was kind of funny at the time. And it was pretty real. But yeah, I was uh, I was just kind of playing that over in my brain as you were talking about it. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I, I think they're inherently you know tied together, um, and you know probably the outsiders of metal, like you know people that aren't really into metal that much, they probably notice it more than we do, um, just because you know we're just tend to be into both things so much where there's intertwined. Um, so. It's great that we were able to talk about all these aspects of horror movies and metal, the relationship between the two. Um, the next topic I wanted to move on to is uh, kind of like the internet reshaping the music industry. Uh, I know this branch is outside of metal a lot, but metal has been you know greatly impacted by it. Um, so CD sales are like 10% of what they used to be like you know 20 years ago. Um, also, I think the internet plays a role with like the death of the rock star. 
um, and especially metal and rock music. Um, what are your thoughts about the internet reshaping the music industry? I'll start with Mr. Shelley here. Well, when you said the death of the rock star, it immediately got me thinking, like, whenever I see uh, pre-2020, that is, whenever I see a festival lineup, I check the headliners or the big ticket items. And they're normally bands that are at least 20 years old, usually more. And I'm sort of thinking what new bands have come up that have really kind of captured that sort of mass like following that you know the likes of Metallica or whoever did back in the day and you you see it happening less and less and I, I start to think about the reasons for it and I do think the internet plays a big part in that because people have access to any music from anywhere around the world at the click of a button for free it means that people aren't sort of rallying around big acts like that anymore I think like the newest one I could think of is maybe someone like Mastodon but again they're quite old now as well. They're not a new new band. So it's like become very atomized in that way. Yeah, I don't really see Mastodon being anywhere near the level of Metallica, though. Um, I know Mastodon was getting bigger, you know, you know, post-internet. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that play into that death of Rockstar. One thing is the, uh, the fan base of metal actually dying down over time. And, you know, Metal being more like in the mainstream consciousness, metal is more of just textural um, components than actual like metal songs and, you know, quote unquote narrative and all that, where you listen to like baby metal, for instance, it's not metal at all, but it has like, you know, some distortion. So they call it metal. Um, and I think that's really part of it with the death of the rock star, especially metal is that the uh, the actual fan base of metal has died down and the mainstream has assimilated some aesthetic components of it. Um, and so there's that element. And there's also like the social media and the internet and all that where everyone feels closer to people. There's no mystery behind these people anymore. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think uh, and it's, it's interesting to see how things have flip-flopped or, you know, the juxtaposition there, because like, you know, some decades ago, you could look like whatever you looked like. And as long as you could play an instrument and write a song, you could be, you know, the sky was the limit. But it seems like today that it's the exact opposite. You can play like complete shit, but as long as you're young and beautiful, then they can make you sound like whatever. And it's interesting to see how we went from completely decimating Millie Vanilli's career over a lip sync when now it's the norm, you know, it's kind of weird. Uh, and so I guess that kind of plays into the way that uh, technology and the internet sort of uh, kind of almost, it's, it's, it's taken a, a pretty big, pretty big hit, you know, as far yeah. as, yeah. Yeah. With rock stars too, it was almost like a, a mythic type of persona that they had you know, they would come out on stage and play these huge arenas and, you know, they would go on and, you know, just keep on, you know, staying in the mainstream consciousness. And nowadays there's not that, you know, aspect anymore. You know, everyone's like, you look at a uh, Chris Jericho, you would assume that Chris Jericho would be like one of the biggest names in metal because number one, he started out being a pro wrestler, one of the biggest ones. And, and he started doing walls of Jericho, whatever his band name is. But he's so like accessible on uh, social media and all that that there's really no like mystery behind his person. Everyone just like oh, it's just Chris Jericho, 
So I think the there's no longer like a this mythic, you know, mainstream type of outlook or focus on an individual where they're they're presented higher than you know just a musician's level where they're a rock star and quote unquote. There's no longer that aspect anymore in metal and rock. Yeah, yeah the whole vibe was totally different. It was like uh, you know when we were growing up watching live shows, we were just so into it and so enamored by the mystique. Like, oh, why is he wearing his headband like that? That's so fucking cool. You know what I mean? Like, and now it's not even you know it's just different. I don't know. Yeah, James Hetfield's beard is like I paid attention to that when I was like twelve. <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah. he's looking like Lemmy. That looks fucking cool. Yeah. I guess as well you mentioned. Uh, the fact that um, people can sort of, you know, do auto-tune their vocals or whatever. And it's kind of the rise of, like, the home studio, the fact that you can record and mix an entire album at home has taken that pressure off, you know, paying for expensive studio time. So you can get it to exactly how you want to sound, but it might not necessarily mean that you have the talent to back it up. You've just spent that much time sort of curating every single aspect of the mix, and then you can just immediately share it online whereas you know back in the day you'd have to have a bit more um kind of work ethic to actually get good at it enough to you know spend time in the studio or whatever yeah absolutely man one thing i noticed with the internet um was the uh back in the day back when i was a kid kazaa was you know kind of big and you can download a, a lot of music off of there I think the Metallica lawsuit was the last stand against what the internet was becoming um, with, you know, music being so accessible Um, because back in the day, like we, we, we talked about the mystique behind these individuals going up on stage and their fashion and all that, you know, that went into it. But we also forget that we had to wait until local record stores um, actually carried their albums, you know, with new releases and all that. People had lines, you know, just to go in and buy the newest Metallica album. Nowadays, that's not the case anymore where, you know, the accessibility is there. Um, people pirate, you know, nonstop. Um, so the, the, the commercial aspect of actual, like the capitalistic aspect of music has definitely died down where, you know, CD sales, I think they're like at 10% of what they were 20 years ago. Um, bands can't rely that much on royalties anymore unless they're, you know, pop music or something like that. Um, so musicians, you know, especially in metal, they're having to, you know, rely on other aspects for income, such as I know Pete Sandoval was a handyman. Um, can you imagine like Pete Sandoval coming into your house and fixing your sink? Yeah, yeah I live close to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pete's a cool guy. I met him, you know they're at the brass mug the old location actually but uh um yeah um so musicians usually have other means of income where they they can't rely on like royalties and all that um anymore like they used to so that might also be like an aspect of why the the rock star you know mystique has died down i was just thinking oh sorry go ahead well, I was just um, going to say there was a there was a sort of backlash to that in the vinyl became like trendy again, and there was like you know they called it the vinyl revival, but oh, the yeah. numbers of people that going were, on. yeah, but the, the numbers of people that were buying vinyl was nowhere near enough to sort of you know affect the finances of particular bands or whatever. Um, it was just sort of a, again a quite a niche kind of culture around that. 
similar thing also happened with cassette tapes to a lesser degree, but mm. you know, kind of like a bit of a revival. Um, <clears throat> I was going to just make a point about uh, compartmentalization. Um, you say uh, death of the rock star. It's kind of just like death of scenes in general. Um, you know, you still have internet communities and there are forums out there and there are message groups, there's social media, like you have communities out there, but they're not, um, they're not connected communities because usually the people aren't really seeing each other. They're just friends over online. And, you know, uh, whereas in the past scenes developed more organically, you know, like your town had a scene and you saw the people there and they made up your scene. Whereas now, you know, you can join a death metal group on, you know, uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, wherever it's got thousands of members. Do you actually know any of them physically? Uh, who knows? So, you know, that, that's, that, that it kind of basically removes uniqueness from regions because, you know, now since everybody can access similar information, you know, people develop similarly and don't have kind of like the quirky uh, aspects to their personalities that make it into their writing. You know, like something, uh, for instance, I was trying to think of a band that came from the middle of nowhere, like Time Ghoul. You ever look where they came from? It's literally the middle of nowhere, Missouri. There is no city of over 20,000 people within like 50 miles. You're right. You're right. And they they wrote some weird stuff. So... Yeah, you're right. No, Tungle Tungle really wasn't anything until the internet came along, um, popularity-wise. I mean, I mean, the music was great, um, right. but they were not really acknowledged until people started sharing that online, and then they became like this oh, yeah. underground band. And that's mm-hmm. this happened a few times. Like I think Blood is another instance of that. I know Blood was kind of big in like Europe, but um, most people just hear about them, you know, through the internet and some of the elitists on there. Um, oh yeah. Demolic too. Yeah, I was going to mention them. And I also think you mentioned sort of regional sounds. And one thing I notice when I'm listening to new releases, I like tie it to, you know, like Swedish death metal sound or Tampa. They have very distinct kind of traits to them, whereas that's not really true anymore. You could get a band from like Singapore that sounds like Entombed or something. And um, it's because they just have access to the, the entirety of metal history at the click of a button. So they can just pick and choose their influences like that yeah it's kind of going into our next topic here um which is if you want to kind of combine the two because i think they can be combined is a the old school death metal revivalist bands like pretty much like dark descent's entire catalog um a, a focal point would be like blood incantation where they played on cartoon network and they got really big all of a sudden um but you look at what they're doing they're kind of taking like elements from like death the band like early death like you know leprosy and spiritual healing and they're repackaging it but what um the reason why i personally can't get into the music it doesn't seem like it's well composed um it seems like riff salad to me because the there's you know, the riffs don't really connect in a lot of instances. It's like, you know, play a riff, it sounds cool, then stop. You know, the drums are going to stop and they'll start a new riff. Um, <laughs> so there's like this big disconnect with like how the riffs flow together, which is very important in metal. Um, the riffs have to be connected in such a way where it takes you somewhere listening to it. And 
they don't necessarily have to be similar, but they have to be within the the compositional frame, you know, to actually move and progress and take the music, you know, along a journey. Um, And Blood Incantation does not have that. And I think the internet actually plays a role with a lot of this OSDM stuff. So uh, um, what are your thoughts? I'll I'll go with Mr. Uh, Deadite. Uh, What are your thoughts on like OSDM, um, the revivalist stuff going on with that? Well, I mean, the fact that it's called OSDM kind of just limits its credibility already. It's defining itself already. You know, I mean, if you want to make new metal, make new metal. Don't make new metal with the intention of emulating old metal. I don't really see the point of that. I mean, sure, you're going to have your influences, and that's always going to creep into your writing. And it can be really difficult to escape your influences when you're writing. I mean, I know that's why I don't really put out music, because everything I write sounds like a combination between like Blood and Napalm Death. So I can't really put any, <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, yeah, you need to, you just need to, um, how can I put this? How can I put this? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm kind of I'm kind of having a little trouble articulating uh, what I'm trying to what I'm thinking of right now. Um, and just come back to me in a second, all right? <laughs> it's okay, no worries. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. What I noticed with OSDM is that a lot of these bands, you know, they they have the right intentions where they want to capture a certain aesthetic. You know, probably you know being influenced by their own personal nostalgia. And they want to repackage it into a novel way. Um, like you look at a, like I remember you're down here in San Antonio. I took you down to Hogwild Records and I bought a Grave Miasma album. And oh, I, remember I, that. I put it on. And your your first criticism of it is like this this music doesn't have any riffs. It just creates atmosphere. There's no actual riffs in it. Um so that kind of I kind of knew that, but I like, you know, all kinds of music. I like, you know, metal, electronic, classical, et cetera, et cetera. That if a, if, if a metal band captures a certain atmosphere, but doesn't really deliver on the riff department, I'll still listen to it and enjoy it. But I know deep down, it's like the riffs are the, the, the structure. They're the essence of metal songs. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely like, what are your thoughts on like Grave Miasma in that instance where well, I put it on and you immediately was like, oh, this isn't artillery, you know, like you know, good riffs. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, you, you, you actually got me right back onto my train of thought. Thank you. I was going to say that uh, they are, for me, more just a combination of their influences rather than something grown from influences. You know what I mean? Just it sounds like they heard... Uh, demon sea or like dead congregation and liked them a lot and so decided to try to emulate that kind of production and then they heard uh something like uh, i don't know blasphemy so they put some of that in there you know I, I it just seemed very fragmented to me and that's what a lot of you know so-called osbm is it's just fragmented just if you want to write metal write metal you know, I, I don't see why all these preconceived, I need to start a black metal band or I need to start an, you know, X genre band. Just start writing. I mean, that's really the, the only way that you can find out what you want to play. And I think that's the most honest way that you're going to get music. Hey, Mr. Shelley, Mr. Shelley, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I was going to say that last point about um, coming up with a preconceived idea before you start writing is really important because... For, for me as a fan, a lot of it doesn't sound like it's spontaneous. It's like, 
you know, these people sit down and say, I'm going to be a sci-fi thrash band and start writing mm. things a bit like Voivod or whatever, or I'm going to be um, an incantation style death doom band rather than actually just saying, no, what, what do I have to bring to the table or what do I have to say within the metal framework and what can I add to it? They're just sort of picking up this style and kind of celebrating the style and they're doing it as talented musicians, but they're not really saying anything. And it's always really easy to tell when you hear a band that does actually have something to say when you compare the two. Um, it's hard to put your finger on it in words, but it's definitely there, I think. So would you I say... Do, oh, I'm, I, I do agree with you, Shelley. I, I didn't mean to say go in with no ideas. I should have worded that a bit better. Definitely, you know, if you want to write metal, you're, you're going to want to start with a metal bass. You're not going to want to start with a bossa nova bass. So um, definitely you, you need to have some preconceived notion, but your point about just trying to emulate a genre from the get-go is, is dead on. And, and it just if you do that, the expression, I think, is inherently hollow. It's really hard to have like a meaningful original expression if you're starting out specifically as a retro thrash band, for instance. Right. Um, Mr. Shelley, um, so I brought up Grave Miasma earlier, um, which shares members with the band uh, Crucia Mentum, um, which I saw play live. And what I noticed about these OSDM bands um were like Crucian Mentum, Grave Miasma. I, I assume uh, Blood Incantation is on the same level um, with uh, their live performances, is that they really pull off the live sound great, um, very greatly. Um, I noticed, I, I saw Crucian Mentum and Grave Miasma, and the, the, uh, the sound that they have live is just epic. Um, it sounds phenomenal. Um, and in a live setting, I, me personally, it's like you don't really discern comp composition that much compared to when you're just listening to a record at home. Um, so it may be like one of the reasons why OSDM is succeeding so much is that, you know, they pull off the live aesthetic um, of classic death metal so freaking well that people don't actually listen to the composition that much because they're more absorbed into the the atmosphere that they create live um another band that would definitely say like falls into the live category but actually has some good riffs is a uh, blasphirian from houston um they sound freaking epic live it's just this big rumbly death metal um and i wouldn't really consider them osdm revivalists because west was in a uh imprecation which you know imprecation is one of the actual old school death metal bands um so what like i think imprecation blasphemy is a good example of you know some old school death metal that's like sticking to it you know where they come from and all that where you have like this other band like blood incantation coming in which they're influenced by that but not really pulling it off yeah, so I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Blasphemy and Imprecation, but I've not been able to see them live. And you're right, when I listen to them with headphones on, I can discern the actual compositions that have gone into it. Whereas I have seen Grave Miasma live, and I would definitely agree that they have a sort of really immersive sound when you're there in the room. But then when I went away to listen to them on my own, it was the same thing where it's, it's just very samey. There's nothing quite jumping out of me that makes it, particularly special and when you were saying that um it's the live setting that might sort of explain partially why this stuff is so popular i was also thinking about 
particularly in the UK anyway, that like Stoner Doom got really big for a while, like following on from Electric Wizard and bands like that. Um, and that, again, is a sound, when you see it live, is very immersive. It's very sort of powerful. Um, but then you go away and listen to it on record and there's no riffs like in the same way as, you know, who they're emulating, like Black Sabbath. It's very kind of, very samey, um, very kind of meandering. And I do again wonder if it's because it's so powerful live that, you know, they kind of hide behind that wall of sound without really kind of thinking about the ideas behind it necessarily. But it's, you know, it's got so popular that everyone sort of jumped on the bandwagon and sort of ran with it. Well, with the pandemic, they don't have, they don't have the live to rely on now. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> True. Um, I, Jesse, I know um, this might be a little bit out of your realm, um, but do you have any like criticism of uh, what the, this revivalist aspect of OSDM, like dark descent and blood incantation and things like that. If you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I can say that uh, I hadn't heard too much about blood incantation uh, up until, you know, a few months back, like maybe a year tops or something. I did check out uh, the newest album they put out and. Um, oh, hold on a second. You good. What was that? Sound like a waterfall for a second there. Someone's dragging a body. <laughs> no, but um, I, I guess I wasn't too awfully impressed by it. Like if I, you know, if the way that I kind of get my OSDM fix is I'll just pop in breeding death, you know, bloodbath, you know, uh, resurrection through carnage. Like I, I still, I don't know. I kind of really gush over their first couple of endeavors and I don't know, I guess I'm more of a, more so into like black metal and stuff like that. But, I will uh, say this: uh, Bloodbath. What they did capture was that Swedish sound, like the 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 guitar tone, very well. Yeah. Um, and they do have a couple of good songs off of Breeding Death, like Trail of Insects. I like that song. Um, but I kind of I kind of put them in in like a, a different category than OSDM, more of like a super group. If you get what I'm saying with that. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, well, technically, they are a damn super group. And I believe they started as kind of like a tribute because they were all just like drinking one night and they really enjoyed old Swedish death metal. So they were just like, oh, let's just start a band. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking that. like um, <laughs> part, of, part of what's driving it is like 10 years ago, a lot of these old school bands either sort of reformed or they released like comeback albums. I was thinking like um, Entrails, who are another one from like the original Swedish scene, but then never really took off in the same way as Entombed or Dismember, but then reformed, started putting out albums. This was around the same time that Asphyx put out Death the Brutal Way, Autopsy put out um, Macabre Eternal. And I think that kind of fueled a lot of younger fans who weren't around in the late 80s, early 90s. It sort of fueled them to just sort of lift this, this style sort of directly and you know use it as an influence for their sound. It also yeah, influenced a lot of those a lot of those bands to just come back and start releasing. I mean, you know, after the mid two thousand tens, seemed like every single band from back then, even if they had a couple of demos like Nirvana two thousand two or you know, I know Uncanny came back and put something out, and uh, so did Convulse. You know, it's just like these are good bands, but it's just very random to have them come back. You know, well, in a, in a way, it's good because I think 
you know, they suddenly realized that there was a new audience for this stuff. And there mm. was, they were right. But, um, mm-hmm. and, and some of the albums were actually, you know, pretty good quality stuff. Like I've enjoyed a lot of it, but I also think it has kind of bred this nostalgia kind of um, complex with a lot of new death metal. And they're sort of, they're made by musicians that weren't around at the time. So it seems odd that they would be nostalgic for something they weren't even they weren't there for the first time around. Well, they're yeah. nostalgic oh, yeah. because they listen to it as their kids and all that, and it brings back you know good feelings of childhood and all that. Um, and you know, as they've grown up and become musicians, they you know form their bands. And some people they have the right intent where they want to make a statement. Uh, that's an authentic statement. I'll say that. Um, Whereas the, the, the impression I get from like bands from uh, Blood Incantation is, is that it's very deliberate music um, on the aesthetic aspect where they, number one, it's like the first part of their name is Blood, which is a band called Blood. That's really good. Number two, the second part of their name is Incantation, <laughs> yeah. which is also yeah. really good. Um, and then, I was not going to mention that, but I'm glad you mentioned it because I was like, that irks the shit out of me. When it seems, it seems it's very deliberate where they, it's even important. to their album artwork and their lyrics and all that, it seems very, very deliberate of a, an aesthetic that they're trying to get over and cater to people's nostalgia. Oh, yeah. And there are definitely even some, ba- like, I would say the majority of the bands from older days, like uh, one uh, that comes to mind immediately is Pestilence. When they came back, it was just, it has been still, because they're still releasing albums, apparently. Yeah. Possibly some of the worst retreads. So it's, it, it's great when, when they come back, but it can be very hard to escape the nostalgia and just kind of fall into old patterns and not be very creative. That's why uh, I thought, actually, uh, Macabre Eternal was not that bad. Uh, you know, Autopsy's Return. There were a couple of songs on there like dirty gore horror that took some took some weird risks and you know showed some creativity in songwriting and you know that's what you want to see when somebody comes back not just retreads of what they made before i definitely agree with you on that and also but also i'd say like asphyx really surprised me with uh death brutal way i thought that was a great oh i agree that was a great one yes yeah but then the one they the ones they followed it up with they kind of sort of it was bought into their own mythology in a way. And uh, they started releasing out like the first three releases they did um, after that all had the word deaf in the title. And a lot of the songs were about, you know, being a deaf doom band. And it's kind of like, we get it and you do it really well, but you're kind of buying into your own kind of mythology around who you are and what you do. And you just kind of rehashing the same ideas as a result. Yeah. There's something that, uh, could be said for like this newest generation of metal coming up um number one uh a lot of the musicians nowadays they they weren't there to experience like the the peak of metal in my opinion which you know jesse and i we kind of came in at the tail end of it um in the late 90s and all that when we got you know super into it and um i know jesse and i played with browning from morbid angel and nocturnus and all that um, because we, we held such music in high regard um, that, you know, we naturally gravitated towards, you know, being in a band with an individual like that. Um, and, of course, you know, Jesse moving on with the Amon brothers, um, the Hoffman brothers. Um, 
So what I noticed with like these newer musicians, they don't really have that upbringing that we have now. They may um, get into metal, you know, later on, and they may not listen to the quote unquote right metal. They may listen to more uh, commercial, like new metal. I'm not, not even really new metal, um, like metalcore and deathcore and all that, like suicide or, or like stories. even more. Re- or yeah. more recently, even like Gent or a lot of like the math core stuff. Yeah, the Gent, the Pooh yeah. Riffer. I mean, yeah, it's it's always possible. But, you know, I mean, we all, I'm sure at some point, and I'm sure now still, have listened to some pretty cringy stuff. Uh, I know I wouldn't listen to most of what I was listening to metal-wise uh, back at uh, 19 years old. So there's there's definitely room for personal evolution, but those traps are going to get a lot of people. Those, those yeah. noodly, noodly traps. Yeah. So that's why I see a lot of musicians, you know, falling into nowadays where they really can't discern um, morbid angel from hate eternal, like the metal aspect where um, you look at morbid angel as death metal, look at hate eternal, that's borderline death core. Um, and people don't really see that. Um, they don't see how the, the like especially of later hate eternal where it's not really riffs it's more of just like shaping texture more than shaping melody accompanying sound yeah sorry it's it's just uh you know i mean you could you could definitely make a case for the earlier album you know obviously i I would say especially the the first one uh even though it's not really much even though it's not really my thing, you can make a case for the earlier album being much more death, death, death metal, like, you know, death core or just regular metal. But they they were and are endemic of a style that I think is kind of dying out in death metal, which is just like blasting constantly. Um, you know, that started dying out when you have all this like uh, newer OSDM and, you know, blood incantation-ish stuff taking over. But even that, uh, you know, uh, it's not going to stay popular forever. So whatever the next evolution is, uh, you know, we're, we're just, we're just going to have to find, uh, we're just going to have to find ways to pick that apart too. But uh, a point about, um, you know, younger generations getting into metal is interesting depending on how long this whole, you know, lockdown pandemic, et cetera, proceeds. If kids are isolated still and not, you know, going to school and whatnot, how are they getting into the metal, into metal? You know, like, I mean, I'm sure all of us, you know, when we go to, sh- when we would go to shows, you know, we would have friends there, we would socialize, you know, how are you getting to a music scene without the social aspect? I you mean, even though so- the social aspect can be the worst, but it also is kind of necessary. You bring up a good aspect, not necessarily just, you know, kids coming up now, but mm. bands themselves, being they can't play live, that means they have to get good again. Yeah, good point. I mean, I, I was at a show last night, and, um, you know, in Florida, it's kind of it's a, a different animal, you know what I mean? Like, they, there's no real lockdown thing going on, you know, in, in Florida, but it's, it's still kind of like this whole ring around the rosy, you know, sit down, and you can take your mask off, stand up, and then you put your mask on. It's like, it's just stupid, man, but whatever. Yeah, Texas actually got away with masks. Like, our governor's like, no more masks. Like, everything's open. 
but you know, like all the businesses and all that, it's like, well, we're going to go by the CDC's rules on this. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. But uh, Deadite brings up a great point about um, just COVID nineteen. Everyone being at home so long, perhaps there might be some good things cultivating right now that we're not aware of. Um, you know, whether it's you know kids, you know, just getting into like the real, the real gritty of death metal. Or it could be, you know, bands realizing it's like, hey, we can't tour right now. We're not making any money. Perhaps we should actually write a good album. Um, things like that where, um, like, I heard a, the that new Cannibal Corpse song. I know they got Eric Rutan in there now. Um, and there was actually some good riffs in it. I, I haven't really kept up Cannibal because every album kind of sounded similar to me um, that they were putting out. But I heard that new song. It's like, hey, this actually has some riffs. It's very cool. Um, so, you know, in that aspect, I see them being very productive during this time during lockdown. Um, and, you know, well, I'm actually, um, I'm really interested to see, like, I think you mentioned it already, but I'm really interested to see what younger musicians will be doing. Like, as Deadite said, like, a lot of them, you know, they've been isolated. They haven't been parts of a scene like they were in the past so and they've just spent time in their bedrooms you know with nothing to do but write music so i'm quite interested to see how that will impact not only the kind of music that's coming out but also the way that it impacts gigs as well i i'm sort of um yeah in a weird way in a morbid way i'm kind of really looking forward to like what is going to happen in terms of like the new music that's going to come out as a result of this pandemic just because i think it will have you know, a really long lasting effect. Yeah. There's yeah. always, there's always going to be outliers though. So you have to take that in consideration, you know, pandemic or not, there's always going to be those outliers who are going to want to do their own thing or, you know, they're going to get into a specific thing. Like, you know, like a younger person, you know, it's like, well, I freaking love, you know, early incantation or something like that. And it's like, they soak up all this death metal and they may have like a, an authentic take on that and they may you know create a band or music from that or whatnot so there's always going to be like this outlier aspect of metal because i think metal inherently draws in outliers but um yeah like you're saying it's like this could be better than a pandemic to isolate everyone then Mm. yeah and also it's uh well it kind of a pandemic is quite a, a metal kind of subject for, for lyrics as well. Like uh, Epidemic. Last year I, bought my first, I bought my first cassette that was recorded during the pandemic by Sadistic Drive from Finland. And just in the liner notes, it said, you know, recorded March 2020 during a global pandemic. And that was when it like hit me as like, this is going to have such a massive impact on the way that music is, is made and like understood. Like when we're allowed back to gigs and stuff, it's going to lead to... It's going to lead to some really interesting. Well, I hope it does anyway. Leads to some very interesting music. Well, there's also there's a few elements here. So number one, the the social aspect was cut off with a, a lot of you know musicians nowadays, and people are really isolated. But you look at uh, this newest generation, like Generation Z, they are like the most like anti-social generation ever. Like. They just go online and call everyone boomers and all that. They're very antisocial. Um, well, some of them are. I'm, I'm sure there's the super social ones. But uh, um, so I, I, I'm socialist. Thinking... <laughs> super socialist. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that too. And that's I'm not really getting into politics on 
the podcast. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, but there could be some freaks out there, and I think the freaks are the ones who move mountains. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, you know, I don't think that uh, I don't think that a lot of the best metal out there was written by the most well-adjusted people. So, You're right. Well, I also, I also, um, I know we've talked about this um, quite a bit, Jason, but like um, the fact that a lot of my favorite metal from back in the day was written by, you know, when these musicians were very young. Um, and I'm of that generation where I got into music in the early 2000s. Um, and like that, I said, I did listen to some pretty cringe stuff back in the day, but I just was lucky enough to get like introduced to the right albums at the right time. And I think that could that can happen to anyone now, especially because they have instant access to, you know, all kinds of music from all over the world. And I think um, it will just have a very interesting impact on, as you said, some of those outliers of that generation. Like I've already come across some albums that, yeah, they just they just approach it from a different angle. That's you know, outside of this you know formulaic old school death metal thing. They're just coming at it from a an interesting place and if there's enough of them maybe it will turn into something but we'll see yeah um the pandemic has definitely been beneficial for my own music like, i i just wrote a new album in two months and I, I know i shared it with a couple of you so jesse it was great to get your feedback on that uh, I, I do really respect your opinion so thank you no of course of course it's excellent material i wanted to say one thing that it kind of i remember um thinking this you know, not too long ago, it was just a, like when people ask, you know, like when you come back from doing a tour, like, oh, how was the tour? How's this? You know, but one of the most, uh, you know, there's a lot of great aspects of tour, but one of the saddest aspects of it is you go from town to town to town every single night. And then every day that you go, there's like a group of local musicians who are doing, you know, the opening gigs or whatever, and they're all loading in and they're all like gung ho, like they're trying to take their piece of the pie. And after you see like literally hundreds of these individual local bands, you begin to realize how many hands are in the cookie jar. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, this is one of the reasons why no one can get a good bite of the pie is because there's so many fucking people doing it. And that's yeah, a oversaturation. And yeah, the internet plays a big role in that. And I think the OSDM revivalist stuff definitely plays a huge role in that oversaturation aspect where well, the you know, one point I was going to make is that um, I guess that the fact that the pandemic kind of went the way that it did, I'm curious to see how that impacted some of these local bands that were kind of maybe wondering whether to continue or not, you know? So I'm wondering if it's kind of like a thinning of the herd or if it's going to kind of reverse and be something even bigger. I really don't know, but it was kind of an interesting concept. Well, on that, like a lot of people I know who, you know, used to go to gigs, you know, every week, um, we've been, you know, really struggling with small venues who are already kind of on the rocks before the pandemic. A lot of them have closed now. And a lot of people are kind of lamenting the fact that live music has been, you know, not an option for a year. And I was kind of, uh, prior to the pandemic, I was like fairly active in the local golf scene and just thinking these gigs were so poorly attended in the first place. Like none of you had showed up to these gigs. Like most of the time there was more musicians there than there were actual fans. So I'm just wondering if now that we've had that taken away for a year, whether people will be like, I'll never take, live music on a local level for granted again i will actually show up to these gigs and make an effort to you know even if it's a tuesday night or whatever like make an effort sure. to support some of these local bands 
I hope so, man. I do. One thing I did want to mention, um, and maybe you guys can give me your feedback on this. I thought it was a cute idea. A, fr a friend and uh, I was talking with a friend last night, and uh, we were sort of talking about this same issue, and, uh, and uh, we got to talking about OnlyFans. And I was like, man, would it be silly for me to create an OnlyFans for my band and, like, just tell all my fans, like, hey, if you want to donate money to the band, just go to our OnlyFans. And then he was like, well, why don't we call it Only Bands? And I was like, shit, that might not be a bad idea. You know? <laughs> so, just something, just throwing that out there, you know? It was like a big well, I mean, GoFundMe and Bandcamp rolled into one or something. Kind of, yeah. yeah. That's, and that's then you can all have pictures of your schlongs hanging out. Right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's my two cents. I figured I'd throw it out there. <laughs> Only dance. <laughs> um, I guess what, one last point I wanted to make is that uh, with, uh, you know, like I was saying before, like the atomization of scenes and basically how they don't exist anymore. I think this, whole pandemic lockdown has accelerated that you know if scenes were dying before now they're pretty much gone you know because people aren't gathering anymore I'm, you know, I'm sure people are keeping in touch online but you know the whole social aspect of being in person going to shows is is the integral part of the scene and without it you don't have any so i mean will we get a bunch of lone geniuses in their bedrooms creating good music just or will me. we? Or will we get a bunch of clones? I'm joking. Uh, oh, just you? <laughs> I was joking. Yeah, Lone Goat, you know, get it? But uh, yeah, I wrote that new album, which I'm really excited to get out there. Um, it'll be out in September. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's going to be a a couple of good sides to the pandemic, where you have you know bands getting good again. And you also have, uh, you know, like Shelly says, some of the uh, younger musicians having more time on their hands and to discover, you know, the the good stuff. Um, so it's going to be interesting. Um, I guess we uh, talked quite a bit on this. Um, do you have any other thoughts on like uh, the OSDM stuff or the pandemic stuff or the Internet reshaping the music industry stuff? I guess I wanted to chime in real quick and just kind of touch base on what that I was saying at one point, how um, maybe this will happen naturally and organically. I certainly hope it does, but we need like a return to the riff. You know what it's I mean? The riff. Like it, it can't all be just math and madness and blasting and pizzazz the whole fucking time. Like we have to return to the riff. And I think it is kind of happening like you were mentioning with the uh, the Cannibal Corpse song, like there's, you know, some good good shit going on in that, you know, and I'm a huge Cannibal fan, you know, totally I get into their shit, but, you know, you're right, like there's like a return to the riff, hopefully yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah something that I haven't heard in them in like 20 years that has come out during the pandemic. So, yeah, certainly uh, should be interesting to see like which bands are going to get good again, which bands are not. Um, which bands are going to die out because the scene isn't there right now. Um, one thing that I was thinking is that, you know, as soon as this pandemic is over, there's just going to be a surge of people going to shows for a while, but then it could die out. Um, so well, that's, that's what I'm, well, that's what I'm hoping. And what I was kind of trying to say earlier is I really hope that 
there is a resurgence of like local scenes with people actually showing up to, to gigs and stuff. Um, and I, yeah, it remains to be seen whether it has any kind of staying power, whether people keep doing that. But I just really hope that people don't take like live music for granted again, which I think they were doing, getting a bit complacent before the pandemic. Well, uh, something uh, I, I want to bring up um, during hard times, usually like in the past, you look at any point in history where there's been a hard time, like the, the Great Depression or World War Two or something like that. Um, the arts have always, you know, been pushed to the side. Um, it's very unimportant aspect of society when there's a big, you know, crisis or pandemic or something like that going on. And, um, like during the great depression, I know this because uh, my grandmother remarried a, uh, a musician who played with Frank Sinatra and, uh, Mildred Bailey. And he actually re recorded quite a bit. Um, he played a clarinet and saxophone, so a very proficient um, jazz musician. Um, and he told me about the uh, depression before he had died, about how hard it was, like uh, any musician going out there, no matter how good they were, like the top of the game and all that, th their, their, their trade, their craft and all that was looked down on society because it wasn't essential to what was going on at that point in time. Like there's great poverty, there's great, you know, crisis going on and entertainment just takes, you know, complete, you know, backseat in that regard. And so I think that repeats through history where um, whenever there's a great crisis, you know, the entertainments, you know, take a backseat, but life has changed quite a bit, like with the advent of technology, making everything connected nowadays, um, that perhaps like we've outgrown that hurdle of a crisis, meaning that the arts take a backseat or something like that, where um, now everyone's so connected. I know bands are doing like uh, live um, feeds from like a, you know, playing in their, their garage or whatnot and getting a lot of people watching that online for live performances. But I, it's kind of weird. Like, it's, it's probably a bigger subject that I'm touching upon right here where um, societal needs versus entertainment um, is actually changing now. Um, but, yeah, if you guys have any it's, thoughts on that. Well, yeah, if, if you don't mind me interjecting, I was, I was going to say, you know, uh, what you mentioned before about, you know, entertainers not being so valued in the past is definitely true. And to some degree, you could argue that today, but I would argue the more compelling view would be that entertainment is actually taking the front seat now because everyone is able to access the internet through devices. People, you know, because of the pandemic have lost jobs, lost money, lost a whole bunch of things. So escapism is what people want. And the more they can engage with that, the better. So uh, I think that, you know, it's a big reason that even though you can, you know, uh, search for whatever news you want, you'll always find ads for celebrity gossip or, you know, whatever, because, you know, it, what, what better to uh, avoid facing a horrible reality than escapism? Well, yeah. I was going to say, like, I think this particular crisis is unique in that, people don't really have much to do other than absorb entertainment and art, which requires people to, you know, be there to make it. Uh, whereas something like 
World War II. I know in, in the UK, like Winston Churchill had to make a case for defending the arts and basically just said on the grounds of what else are we fighting for if not that because it's part of our identity as, as a people and who we are. And it's very easy to sideline it and say it's not essential because it doesn't sort of meet people's immediate needs. But it is one of the things that makes life worth living. It sort of gives it meaning. So it's always it always we always need to sort of fight to make it a central kind of concern in the, in situations like this. Is this a good time to mention that I'm really trying to find a PS5? Speaking of entertainment, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I was thinking of like Shakespeare and stuff, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, it's it, it, no proof positive of my, of my point. No, I'm just kidding. Man. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, you guys are kind of right that this is a abnormality, uh, historically speaking, where we have this great global crisis and entertainment is actually getting big. Like you look at uh, Disney Plus and all these streaming services, they're just growing and growing and growing. You know, that escapist aspect that you talked about um so yeah this could be like the complete inverse of you know history where you know the inter- entertainment has always taken like a backseat when there's been a crisis but nowadays like you know everyone's you know at home you know during a pandemic it was like what are they going to do play board games or put on netflix or you know listen to that blood incantation live stream <laughs> <laughs> nope <laughs> I'll take the I'll take the board game. <laughs> yeah, good times. So, anything else you guys would like to uh, state regarding any of the subjects that we touched upon today? Um, you're welcome to. Otherwise, we'll close up the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just been a real pleasure hanging with you guys today, and nice meeting meeting everyone and getting a chance to chat. You know, hopefully, we can do it more in the future, and uh, I'll get my microphone situation figured out in my studio, get everything going with that. But yeah. I've had a good time. It's been a pleasure, Jesse. How about you, Mr. Shelley? Any any last thoughts? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd just echo what Jesse said. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm still optimistic about um, the future of music after once, you know, the pandemic is lifted. And uh, who knows, maybe one day I'll, uh, I'll be able to head over to the US and hang out in person. So, Yes, son. Yeah, <laughs> man. Absolutely. Yep, cool. Um, it's great to have you on the show, Dead Eye. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, no, we, we touched on a lot of really good subjects. I mean, a lot of subjects that you could spend two hours on their own talking about. Um, you know, the pandemic and its implications for metal are, you know, something that are still unfolding. And it's just it's interesting to see where it's going to go. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Of course. Well, going to wrap up the show. So thank you all for being a part of it. This was the first round table. Um, I'm sure there will be more and you three will be, you know, returning if you want to. Um, So definitely great to have you all. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.